Open your Bibles, if you please, to uh, Joshua chapter 24. We finish our studies in the book of Joshua today. Our text is Joshua 24, verses 29 through 33. The topic of those verses, we're encouraged to reflect on the burials of Joshua, Joseph, and Eleazar. The title of our message, Dead Men Tell Bold Tales. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity, the privilege of reading your word, of studying your word, of really interacting with your word through the Holy Spirit, seeing our hearts and our lives being laid bare before you in such a beautiful way, Lord, so that we can be uh, moment by moment and day by day made more like Jesus Christ, so that when we're in our homes, in our neighborhoods, out in the world, even here at church, Lord, and folks see us, they'll see you, the hope of glory, the Lord who's coming uh, for his church and then to rescue the world, especially during this Christmas season, Lord, when many people have uh, spiritual intentions. I pray that we would be able to share the light and the glory of Jesus Christ, that our very countenance would be one of joy, and that we would reflect all that is good and gracious and loving and pure and merciful about you to a lost, dark world. And as the darkness deepens, Lord, in these last days, may we shine all the brighter. Guide us, direct us, teach us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. An old man had died. His funeral was in progress, and the country preacher talked at length of the good traits of the deceased. What an honest man he was, and what a loving husband and kind father he was. Puzzled, his widow leaned over and whispered to one of their children, Better go up there and take a look in the coffin and make sure that's really your pa. I've been to enough funerals to know that eulogies are sometimes exaggerated to make the deceased seem better in their death than they actually were in life. No exaggeration necessary for Joshua. He was eulogized as the servant of the Lord. And we're told that Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. Joshua's life of faith inspired others to follow the Lord. To further inspire us, the writer then mentioned the patriarch Joseph. The faith of our spiritual fathers, as recounted in Scripture, ought to inspire us as we read how God used ordinary men and women to accomplish extraordinary things. There's another death recorded, that of Eleazar, another spiritual giant. But the emphasis at his death is really on his son. Phinehas, who always took up the invitation to serve the Lord no matter the cost. Looking back on these deceased saints, we ought to be inspired. And looking around as God's contemporary saints, we are being invited to serve the Lord as modern-day Phinehas's. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, the faith of your fathers endues you with inspiration. And number two, the faith of your fathers extends you an invitation. First of all, let's look at the inspiration that we derive from these men of God. If you were to die today, what would your eulogy sound like? Would 
I need to exaggerate at your funeral as I gave it? Well, it's a reasonable question because each of us is providing the material for our eulogies by how we live each day. We should strive to deserve the eulogy Joshua received if it could honestly and simply be said of us that we were the servant of the Lord. What high praise indeed. Joshua's entire life and career are a case study in servanthood. Let's just highlight a few things as we look at his burial. Verse 29 and 30, Now it came to pass after these things that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. And they buried him within the borders of his inheritance at Timnath-serah, which is in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gosh. Joshua started out as the apprentice. He was chosen by Moses to assist and succeed him. And as glorious as that sounds, it was a tough gig. Joshua was involved with the giving of the Ten Commandments by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. As Moses' apprentice and assistant, Joshua accompanied him, but only part way up the mount. He was apparently not allowed to go into the cloud of God's glory because only Moses was commanded to go into it and meet with God. You can read the story in Exodus 24. So think of it. Think of the scene. Moses in the presence of the glory of God, having a meeting with God. The Israelites who had left Egypt were somewhat comfortable back in their encampment. Not that he would have wanted to be a part of it, but they actually threw a party and were having a feast while Joshua was gone. And so for 40 days, Joshua was alone somewhere on the mountain, not with Moses, not with the people, in between. Not really all that glorious. Would I wait for Moses 40 days on a mountain after being shut out of this important meeting with God? It's an interesting question because we struggle with this on a smaller basis all the time. We, we have our feelings hurt, don't we? When, especially if we think something's going to happen and then it doesn't happen, especially in a spiritual dimension and, and we're kind of left in between. We're kind of left hanging. We don't get to go into the big meeting. We don't get recognized. A while later, Joshua was tapped to be one of the 12 spies to go into the promised land and give a scouting report. Ten spies returned with a message of doom and gloom. Only two, Joshua and Caleb, encouraged Moses and the Israelites to press forward and take the land. The immoral majority won the argument. To add injury to the insult, the people threatened to kill Joshua and Caleb. The disobedience of the Israelites added a 40-year detour to Joshua's career as he wandered through the desert watching that entire generation die off. Would I remain among such a people or would I move on to something more my liking? Think of it just, again, on a very natural basis. You might have an idea of some kind of a promotion schedule, some kind of a spiritual promotion and then it, it just doesn't seem to come. You wait and you wait and you wait. And you're tempted to move on because you don't see it coming to pass. At one point, Joshua sees his leader and mentor, the great man of God, Moses, blow it by striking the rock that God told him to speak to. Water came forth to satisfy the thirst of the wanderers 
but it was a serious misrepresentation of God's character as a gracious God. Moses was disciplined by God and was not allowed to enter into the land. In fact, God killed him and took him and buried him secretly. Not exactly the way Joshua thought he would come to succeed Moses. Not, a, not an easy transfer of power. Could I survive the fall of a mentor or would it cause me to stumble? Loneliness, unexpected delays, personal disappointments. Those are just a few of the things Joshua dealt with in his career as the servant of the Lord. If at the end of your life you think you will be called the servant of the Lord, you too will have to deal with those things. You see, the thing about being a servant is you are treated like a servant. It is when you find yourself being treated like a servant that you learn if you are one. There's a difference really between serving the Lord and being a servant of the Lord. And you realize that difference the first time and every time you're treated like a servant. Every time you're overlooked, every time you're misunderstood, uh, every time somebody treats you in a way that is less than equitable. Now, being treated like a servant isn't so bad in one respect. In fact, it's something to rejoice in because it puts you in fine company. In writing their New Testament letters, Paul and James and Peter and Jude all called themselves the bondservant of Jesus Christ. A bondservant was someone who voluntarily entered a life of servanthood because they loved their master. It derives from the Hebrew custom of you being able to sell yourself for a period of time into servitude to pay off a debt. Oftentimes, however, the person who had sold himself into servitude liked it in the master's household, loved his master, and could, at the end of seven years, when all slaves had to be set free, could voluntarily choose to remain a servant in that household for the rest of his life. If he did... The master would take him out to the front door of the home and he would put his ear lobe up against the doorpost and they would drive an awl through it and put a, uh, an earring in the ear marking him as a bond servant, a bond slave of that particular household. And all of these guys in the New Testament either refer to themselves or other believers as the bond servants of Jesus Christ and they do it with great pride with great rejoicing. Now, even in, even in that culture, uh, you know, though, though there was uh, some excitement, I guess, about being a bondservant, I mean, it, wouldn't you rather just be free? Wouldn't you rather be the master and yet not in the service of Jesus Christ? And so they rejoiced. In addition to God's faithful saints, it puts you in the company of your Lord, your Savior, Jesus Christ, who said of himself that he came to serve and not be served. He took up the position of a bondservant when he humbled himself to serve you and I and the human race to the point of dying on the cross. When I understand I am the Lord's bondservant, then I can be left out of the loop of the important meeting. I can remain among the disobedient and help care for them. I can overcome the failings of those over me and not be stumbled. In fact, I can do all things because it is Jesus Christ who not only strengthens me, but whom I serve. 
I can look past every situation and every individual in those situations and realize that I am serving the Lord. I no longer think in terms of whether it's fair or whether it's right or whether I'm getting my due. None of those things matters as long as I am doing it as unto the Lord. Being a servant is a high calling. It is a high privilege. Don't let being treated like a servant ruin being a servant for you. Verse 31, all Israel served the Lord the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. This was Joshua's legacy. His example of servanthood outlived him. It inspired the elders who outlived him. They applied the leadership principles they learned from him and the nation enjoyed spiritual success. Commentators are fond of saying that although the man of God dies or the woman of God, the work of God goes on. No one of us is ever indispensable. We should always be looking for those to disciple who can carry on the work. We should first of all be looking at home to disciple our own children to know the Lord and to carry on the work of serving Him. It is a blessing, it is a privilege, it is a wonder and a joy to be able to share the good news about Jesus Christ with your own children. From the earliest possible age, uh, if you want to talk to your kids in the womb, that's fine, that doesn't bother me. I don't know if there's any research about that anymore, but just start talking to them about Jesus Christ. And don't assume that your kids are going to be saved automatically because you're saved. They need to be evangelized. They need to be led to faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it's hard sometimes with kids because, you know, there are kids, they, can, they get saved when they're five, six years old. Uh, and they're Christians all of their lives, and you're like, you know, are they really saved? Err on the side of, of continuing to evangelize them and looking for fruit in their life. Read the Bible stories, get them into Sunday school, encourage the Sunday school teachers to go on evangelizing them. What a joy and a, and, and a privilege to have those little lives at home and to mold and shape them generation after generation. Uh, to carry on the work of the Lord. And we should next of all be looking in the church to disciple others to continue the work of edifying the saints and evangelizing the unsaved. If you have a ministry of any kind in the church, uh, you should always be trying to work yourself out of a job to be raising up others after you, hopefully others younger than you, a next generation, so that the work of God goes on. God's work, of course, always goes on generation after generation. The Lord sees to it. But it doesn't mean every church goes on. A lot of times churches do grow old. Uh, I know of more than one church, and you probably do too, where f finally in the end there were just a bunch of old people. They were saintly, they were godly, they were wonderful. But... One thing they didn't pay attention to is raising up a generation under them. Maybe they didn't understand the younger generation. Who does? And, and then you get into those things about our music, your music, we're godly, you're, we're not sure if your stuff is godly. And, and there becomes a greater and greater schism. There's a love for the, you know, the older saints. They love those younger saints, but they grow apart. 
because they can't seem to, to gel together. The older saints don't understand that they're, they're actually moving off the scene and others are coming up. And, and, and so, uh, God bless them, but those churches die. They die off and then they end up giving them to the younger generation, you know, who's moved off somewhere else. And, and, uh, and that's a blessing too, but I think the Lord would have us pay attention to this and be raising up others. Uh, it, what, I, I don't think I'm indispensable. I know you don't think you're indispensable either. I mean, if you're asked on a quiz, are you indispensable at church or in God's community, you'd have to say no or else, you know, it'd be a red flag. But I would suggest to you that if you're not raising up somebody to do what you're doing who is younger than you, if you're old, and by old I mean over 30. No, just kidding. Uh, if you're not trying to, I mean, you know, maybe God hasn't provided that, but you want it. If you're not doing that, you're acting though as though you're indispensable because you're the only one who can do what you're doing. You do not need job security in the church of Jesus Christ. You need to be raising people up to do the work of the ministry and trust the Lord. Interestingly, Joshua had no one single successor. Moses chose Joshua, but Joshua didn't choose one person. He discipled a group of men, the elders. The Israelites were in the land and God was changing the leadership style to meet this new situation. They didn't need a Moses. They didn't need a Joshua the tribes were now scattered throughout the country, and they were in their land, and so they needed elders. They needed a group of men. To be a servant, you must remain flexible. It sounds easier than it is, especially as you get older and more set in your ways. It's been said, blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken or get bent out of shape. If you regularly get bent out of shape, then you're not very flexible and we need to remain flexible and trust the Lord. Say, Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing and how do you want it done? There's some things that will never change. There's some traditions that are good. They're still helpful. Others sometimes get a little bit hurtful. And so we're always trying to seek the Lord and find his leading for how we might reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Joshua wrote this book, but obviously not the final chapter. We don't know who wrote it. No worries, though. Someone else, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote exactly what God intended to be written for our learning. The writer included an important historical footnote in verse 32. He says, The bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem, in the plot of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver, and which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph. The patriarch Joseph had instructed Israel to not leave his body in Egypt, but to bury him in the promised land. Almost 400 years later, during the Exodus, they carried out his bones. Then after another 40 years of wandering, they brought Joseph's remains to the promised land and they buried him. Joseph had a faith that inspired others. Even though it would be centuries before Israel entered their land, he insisted he would one day be buried there. When he was, what a moment that must have been in the annals of God's faithfulness. Joseph had risen to be second in command of the world's most powerful empire. But his heart 
was in a little plot of land in Canaan because God had promised it to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Joseph's father. And not even, uh, not even a retirement l- plot. His best um, life in the promised land was going to be a burial plot. And so he said, hey, I'm second in command in Egypt. I can do whatever I want. But what I want is to be in a tiny piece of land buried in God's promised land. And so please don't leave me here. And what what a tremendous statement of faith. Nothing the world could offer really ever distracted Joseph from God. Not the hatred of his own brothers who wanted to kill him for being spiritual. They ended up settling for selling him into slavery. Not a beautiful and powerful woman who wanted him to commit adultery and had him imprisoned for refusing. Not being forgotten by the Pharaoh's servant after he promised he would set him free. Not all the wealth and power of Egypt once he had been elevated to Pharaoh's steward. Joseph's life is one long inspirational tale. We're inspired by him to believe that all things really do work together for good. We're inspired by him to look beyond this world and this life to the city whose builder and maker is God. You could go on and on talking about Joseph. He's one of the great pure characters in the Bible. But again, from him, we see that the servant of the Lord has a tough road from the world's point of view. Imagine if you can, those of you who know the story of Joseph, imagine not knowing the end of that story and reading it as a, as a short story or as a novel. I mean, it doesn't get any worse than that. Here's a kid who all he does is has a dream. God, he gives him this dream and then his brothers try to kill him. They sell him into slavery. Uh, He gets falsely accused of sexual misconduct. He gets thrown falsely into prison. He's languishing in prison after helping guys out that could get him out of prison. Then, even though he's second in command in Egypt, that's not very great for a Hebrew kid. There's all kinds of, you know, potential compromise and weird things that he has to put up with. As a, and, and you're thinking, wow, how can this get any worse? What is God doing? Why would I want to serve this God? It's like people who sometimes say in another dimension, they say, well, you know, why would I want to serve a God who allows suffering? Uh, and, and, you know, God, you know, why doesn't he do something about it? And, and this is the thing, because they don't turn the page. They don't see the end of the story. Then you turn the page. You see Joseph's brothers come down. The nation of Israel is down to like 70 people. The promise of the Messiah is teetering on the brink of disaster. And his brothers come down and Joseph is mind blown as he realizes God has done all of this to put him in the very position he needs to be in to save his family and to bring the Messiah into the world eventually. And in a, it just overwhelmed with emotion. He, he does all this crazy stuff with his brothers until he finally breaks down weeping and he says, I am Joseph, your brother. You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And you think, oh man, this is one of the greatest stories of all time. This is way better than Dickens. This is great. This is amazing. Who could have ever thought of this? And you're with Joe. You think, and all of a sudden you realize that all of that suffering 
not just was for a purpose, but it was worth it to bring him to that point, to that revelation of the greatness of God, the goodness of God. Not so much what a terrible God we serve, because why would he allow that? But what a great God we serve that he could do that and accomplish that using even the evil will of man to praise him. I mean, it just it's mind blowing. It's one of the greatest stories of all time. Even Andrew Lloyd Webber couldn't mess it up that bad in his musical. I mean, it's fantastic stuff. And and that's the inspiration that we get from Joseph and others in the Bible. As a servant, you will often be waiting for God to turn the page of your life. Wait and go on waiting. Don't give up. Don't take matters into your own hands. Look past your circumstances and the people and unto the Lord. Continue to serve Him. After all, you've read the end already, the ultimate end. You know that Jesus is in heaven building your mansion. I like that word mansion, don't you? Not a mansionette, <laughs> but a mansion. Some of your Bibles tone it down and they say dwelling places, but really the actual word doesn't mean dwelling place. And I don't want to go to heaven and have a dwelling place. It sounds like something seedy, like a hobo thing, you know, like that's their dwelling place, you know. They hang out, all the Calvary pastors hang out over there in that under a bridge in heaven, you know, and stuff. <laughs> Don't go down there. I, you can't go after dark because there's no darkness. But anyway, I'm going to have a mansion. Now, I, you know, I've, I've been in a couple of really cool houses in my life none that were mine, but, you know, uh, and I've, waiting for the dentist, I've seen a lot of houses in those magazines that it seems like dentists always have. Uh, not so much doctors. Doctors, I don't know, they, they need help with their magazine, but dentists have really cool magazines. Anyway, and, and, and some houses are just so, they're just, you look at it and say, man, that is amazing. And you think, man, if I had unlimited resources, that's the kitchen I would have. I mean, look at that kitchen. It's the size of my house. It's got a row of refrigerators. It looks like the top chef kitchen, you know, or something. I mean, it's just, it's just fantastic. It probably comes with a chef. And, and I mean, you look at some of and just the innovation and, and all. And then I think, you know, Jesus Christ is my general contractor. And not only that, he knows me better than I know myself. And formed me in my mother's womb and is working to complete me. Man, what a showing that's good. When I, I, the Lord, I think, is going to be really excited to show you your house. You know how you, when you go out with a realtor and you're looking for a house and they show you two crummy houses and then they show you the house they want to sell you, which that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's usually a nice house. And you're, hey, this is a nice house and stuff. Jesus is going to take you and then room by room and you are going to be mind blown. I don't even know by what because I can't imagine what we would call the technology of heaven. I mean, the things that your house is going to be able to do and do for you. And just, I mean, it's going to be a mind blowing thing. I used to love the house of tomorrow at Disneyland. I thought that was cool. And push button lights and all kinds of, it had a microwave, which, wow, you know. Remember the first microwaves are like a hundred million pounds and ten thousand dollars, and now they give microwaves away practically. You know, fifteen bucks, take it. And uh, so, anyway, it's going to be fantastic. This is what God is doing for you. So, as one uh, poet once said, "Who can mind the journey when the road leads home?" 
Continue to serve the Lord. Be a servant of the Lord. Work on your eulogy. In the end, if you are eulogized, you'll want to be described as the servant of the Lord. You don't want someone to lean over during your funeral and say, go up there and take a look and see if that's Gene in the coffin. I don't remember him being that way. (laughs) I'm sorry. If you never get the opportunity to be eulogized at a funeral service because you've been raptured and, uh, and all, you still can be described as a servant. You'll want to hear Jesus say at his reward, see, well done, good and faithful servant. Let Joshua and Joseph and all the other men and women of faith inspire you to be the servant of the Lord. Now, there's another burial in our text, but it's one that emphasizes the effects of inspiration on those who are living. The faith of your fathers extends you an invitation in verse 33. Eleazar was the high priest of Israel during Joshua's tenure as commander-in-chief. He was the third son of Aaron, the brother of Moses. After the death of his brothers, Nadab and Abihu, who offered God strange fire on his altar and God killed them, uh, he was appointed to the charge of the sanctuary. Interesting job. Just saw my brothers get killed for being drunk and offering strange fire. I'll take the job. On Mount Hor, he was clothed with the sacred garments, which Moses took from his brother Aaron and put upon Eleazar as a successor. He assisted at the inauguration of Joshua, and he assisted in the distribution of the land after the conquest. The highlight here, however, is not Eleazar or his burial. It's really on his son, Phinehas. Phinehas fast becoming one of my Bible heroes. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him in a hill belonging to Phinehas, his son, which was given to him in the mountains of Ephraim. Now, we've talked about Phinehas before. Let me just give you some highlights. While yet a youth, he distinguished himself at Shittim by his zeal against the immorality into which a Moabite woman had tempted an Israelite man, and thus he stayed a plague that had broken out among the people by which 24,000 Israelites had already died. Afterwards, he commanded the army that went out against the Midianites. When representatives of the people were sent to interview two and a half tribes who, after crossing the Jordan, built a, an altar uh, and departed without giving any explanation for what they were doing, it was Phinehas who was the leader of that party. Phinehas was afterwards in the book of Judges, a chief advisor in a war against the Benjamites. And he is commemorated by name in Psalm 106, verses 30 and 31. Altogether, a remarkable Bible character. I was thinking about him, and and, um, not to be trivial or anything, but you would call Phinehas a go-to guy. You could count on him to do what needed doing, and he'd do it right. There, all the way back in the book uh, of Numbers, when everybody is kind of standing around, really, This plague is going on. This immorality is rampant in the camp. Everybody's standing around. And they watch as an Israelite man goes into a tent with a Moabite woman to have sex with her. And Phinehas just says, okay, that's it. And he gets a javelin and he goes in there and says, "Uh, excuse me. And he pierces them both, kills them both on the spot. And God stays the plague. That's your go-to guy. I suggest that while inspiration is important, we must also take up the invitation and be servants. I want to be God's go-to guy, and I know you do as well. You want to be a go-to guy or a go-to gal. It's in our spiritual DNA once you get saved. Go-to guys and gals need first to resolve in their hearts the things we listed when talking about Joshua and Joseph. 
the detours, the discouragements, the dilemmas. All of those kinds of things need to be put into perspective. You need to look beyond them to the Lord. If you can't get beyond them, then you're not going to really get very far as the servant of the Lord. Then you need to engage. You need to make yourself available for whatever needs to be done, not necessarily what you might want to do, but what needs to be done. Phinehas started out as an executioner. He took a javelin and ran it through those two. It needed to be done, and he did it with zeal. It makes me ask myself things like, am I really willing to do what needs doing? And when I'm doing it, how's my execution? I'm sorry. Phinehas led a battle. He distinguished himself as a leader of soldiers. It makes me ask myself things like, am I zealous to overcome the enemies of God first in my own life and then helping the people of God? Phinehas led a mediation. His strong words interviewing the two and a half tribes averted a civil war. It makes me ask myself things like, do I work to keep others from stumbling? Phinehas was an advisor in the book of Judges. It makes me ask myself things like, am I willing and able to give the advice and counsel that a person really needs? Phinehas expands our understanding of what it means to be a servant. I need to be in a state of spiritual readiness to do whatever needs doing. Readiness is pretty important. I've often used the example of emergency services personnel. When you have to dial 911, you expect men and women who are ready to respond, and they are. If you are a first responder, sometimes you're off duty and you can slack off a little. But in the Christian life, there really isn't any off duty. At least that's how we must approach serving the Lord. I am to be ready in season and out of season 24-7 to respond to the Lord. At home, in my neighborhood, in my church, at work, I am on duty as a Christian. Then I must believe I can respond to whatever needs doing as I rely upon the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's he who takes mere guys and gals and elevates us to modern-day Phinehas status. We can respond to a variety of spiritual needs in the lives of others. We don't have to know everything. We just have to know Jesus. And if we will humbly seek him, shoot up what we call Nehemiah prayers. You know, Nehemiah, he'd been praying and praying, and then he had an opportunity uh, that the king gave him, and he just, a couple seconds, you know, prayed, and uh, God honored that. So a lot of times we just need to say, Lord, I, I can't answer this question. I can't meet this circumstance, but I know you, and, and I want to talk about you and tell this person how you can help them. The book of Joshua is one long invitation to engage as the Lord's servant, not just in occasionally or even often serving the Lord. That's great, but I want to be the servant of the Lord. Serving is one thing. It's great. No one would put it down. And all of us have done that. But we want to move into this other dimension of being the servant of the Lord, ready to be tapped out ready to be used, or just as ready to be overlooked, just as ready to have to wait. And, and either way, it doesn't really matter because you're serving the Lord. And so live in such a way that being a servant is both your eulogy and it becomes your legacy. Let's pray.
Father, how great is your goodness. It's hard for us sometimes to see in the lives of these giants of Scripture our own lives. We seem so mundane. We seem so um, insignificant when compared to a Joshua or a Joseph or an Eleazar or even a Phinehas who doesn't get uh, that much accolade. No different in the New Testament, Lord, when we look at Peter and Paul and James and John and Jude and all of those guys. It seems like we, uh, you know, can never really be those people. And that's just, just wrong, Lord, because we are those people. And they're given to us as examples. If you could do those things in the lives of those guys and gals, then you can do them in our lives as well. And usually we're dealing on a smaller scale, and so we should be even more encouraged that you can help and encourage us, Lord. And so we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that in a non-morbid way, we'd be working on our eulogy today and that we would simply but powerfully want to be remembered as the servant of the Lord and that our legacy would be that perhaps our family after us, our children, or those that we discipled would go on serving you all the days of their lives as well. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. What a blessing to be together with the Lord and in the Lord. A couple of things I want to emphasize. Jake went over some announcements, but uh, a couple of things. Tomorrow, 8.30, uh, we need uh, some gals especially who have just that special touch. There's just something about that special touch you ladies have in doing Christmas decorating. Uh, we, we want you to uh, come and help us have a time of fellowship and, and all. Um, we kind of have the decorating down to a science. We know what we're doing. We have everything that we need. And uh, it'd just be a sweet time of fellowship. So 8.30, come for five minutes or five hours, whatever uh, you can do. And, you know, if some of you guys want to show up too, that's fine. Uh, but um, you, you won't be in charge. Uh, that's for sure. I've seen how you decorate. You know, it's... Just kind of a thrown up mess, you know. But anyway, or maybe that's just me. Uh, ladies, the women's dinner is this Friday, and we need to get the caterer a number. And so we'd ask that you get over to the bookstore today and uh, sign up so we can kind of finish the signups. If you'd like to come to the women's dinner and you really just can't afford it, uh, or you even want to bring somebody and you can't afford to bring them, uh, that's fine. We'll, we'll uh, sponsor you. Uh, so don't don't let finances become a problem. It's always a really wonderful time of fellowship around the Lord, and uh, we want as many ladies as possible uh, to come. Uh, on a personal level, last week I think I mentioned to you that I was going to meet with the fire chief and talk about a fire chaplaincy. Well, that happened, and, and it was really typical. Uh, I met with the chief, and then Sean Glenn and his crew uh, of two guys were there, and as soon as they sat down to eat, they got a call. Uh, that there was a gas leak somewhere, and so they had to leave. So it gave the chief and I a time uh, to talk. Uh, we had a great time, and we're going to move forward uh, with uh, establishing a fire chaplaincy in Hanford. Uh, something I'd ask you to pray for me, actually, right now as you're leaving, uh, they called me just a few minutes ago. There's, there's kind of a major incident here right now in Hanford, uh, and uh, they want to know if I could respond to that. And uh, obviously, I couldn't because I was here, and so I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to go or if they still need me. Uh, and I'm supposed to go to Lancaster tonight. Gene and I are going down there for a board meeting for Calvary Chapel of Lancaster. So, you know, uh, just pray that the Lord would reveal what he wants us to do and how he would want us to do it. So, uh, what fun, huh? 
It's the blast. God bless you. God keep you. In Jesus' name, amen.